0: I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less-than-perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Key Eats, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. Dr. Kevin Hall received his PhD in physics from McGill University, and is now a tenured senior investigator at the National Institute of Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Diseases, NIDDK, one of the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, in Bethesda, Maryland. Kevin's background is quite unusual. He began his life as a physicist and a mathematician, and only came to biology somewhat by accident. Yet he has contributed so much to what we know about how specific nutrients or nutrient classes affect metabolism and specifically, our propensity to get fat. He is working on so many interesting things, and we got a chance to touch on many of them. As I hinted at the end of last week's episode, this week is part two of a two-part series I did talking with two of the giants of the nutrition field. Sometimes it is portrayed that David Ludwig and Kevin Hall are on opposite sides of the same argument. But in sitting with the two of them on two consecutive days, I was struck by how much more they have in common than not. They are both rigorous scientists, and they are doing some of the most detailed and mechanistic work aimed at understanding how what we eat affects our body's metabolism, and may be contributing to the obesity epidemic. While if you asked them both their feelings on the carbohydrate-insulin model of metabolism, you'd get very different answers. Being an optimist, I see the commonalities as far greater than the differences. Lastly, a quick word from our sponsor, Key Eats. I mentioned back on our episode with Emily Oster that we've had our hands full with some really exciting new developments for the company. One of them is that we're now called Key Eats and no longer Keto. I can also share with you that we're launching our own line of food. We're starting with our own low carbohydrate bars and are very excited about how they turned out. First off, they taste great. Even my kids who hate any low carb food simply love them. I've quite literally had to hide them in my house so they won't disappear. But we didn't just set out to make a great tasting bar. We wanted to make something that would truly support people on their low carb nutrition program, and especially the Key Eats program. And that's what these bars really do. The macronutrients are phenomenal. There are just three grams of net carbs, 12 grams of protein, and 18 grams of fat per serving with just one gram of saturated fat. They are 100% plant-based and the ingredients are so clean and simple. The vanilla almond is my favorite. And it's made of just almonds, pea protein, chicory root fiber, and flaxseed. They are sweetened with my favorite natural non-sugar sweetener, allulose syrup. In addition to vanilla almond, there is cookie dough and fudge brownie. It's really amazing to combine such great taste with incredible nutrition. We're so confident that you'll like them, we'll send you a sample pack of three bars for free, including free shipping. So just go to keyeats.com slash BKM. So that's K-E-Y-E-A-T-S dot com slash BKM for details on how to get these bars for free with free shipping. In the meantime, here's Dr. Kevin Hall.
1: Well, I am a Canadian. I'm from just outside Toronto, Canada. I grew up in Canada. Uh, I guess I moved to the U.S. in 1999. So it's been a while I've been here.
0: Uh, And you were, I think I... Had heard and we've talked about that you were a mathematician or a physicist back in the day, is that right? Yeah, I
1: don't know if I was ever a real yeah. physicist, but I do have a PhD in physics, yes. And you did that in Canada? Yes, at McGill University. So, But even then, what I was I was in a weird center, and w- weird in a good way. It was a kind of very cross-disciplinary center called the Center for Nonlinear Dynamics in Physiology and Medicine. And so it was actually housed in the physiology department, but um, all of the professors had, well, not all of them, but many of them had cross appointments in the physics department. And so I had the choice of either going into the physiology department or the physics department to do my PhD. I kind of thought I'd do better since I haven't ever taken a biology course since high school (laughs) in the qualifying exams, doing the PhD in the physics department. So that's kind of why I stuck in there. But I was primarily interested in mathematical models to better understand different kinds of cardiac arrhythmia, which, of course, you probably know a heck of a lot more about than I do. But um, there's a
0: huge ro- I mean, world of people who still to this day do mathematical modeling of arrhythmia.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there are. There's, um, you know, not to diss that area, but there's at some point, there's like a critical mass of people who most cardiologists don't know anything about what they're doing. And, um, and yet they're a critical mass. So they form their own community. And that was the reason I kind of wanted to get out of the field was because, you know, we were publishing papers in both physics journals and cardiac electrophysiology journals. And it was pretty clear to me that those two communities never really talk to each other that much. And so I was kind of like, I think I should probably go do something else. As much fun as this is and as useful as it could be, I didn't see the modeling really translating into any impact in clinical care for these folks so then did you
0: go on to do a postdoc and or what was next after yeah, I finishing did not. your phd i
1: i'd heard horror stories about postdocs <laughs> so um but at the time so mcgill was running a summer school in nonlinear dynamics and mathematical modeling and this group of folks came up um who were starting a company in the in the bay area and uh they took the course. And I think that part of the point of taking the course was to start to find potential new employees. And so I was sort of, you know, made an offer. I couldn't refuse <laughs> to come move to the wow. San Francisco Bay Area. And uh of course, I didn't realize how expensive the San Francisco Bay Area was, uh, especially relative to Montreal. Back then, Montreal still a pretty cheap city to live in. Back then, it was very cheap. And so, I remember the, the salary offer was like, you know, six times what I was making in Montreal. I thought, this is going to be great. <laughs> I'm going to be rich. And then I first found out that my rent, what my rent was going to be in California. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm not going to be rich. <laughs> this is insane. But yeah, so I moved to this little uh, startup in the Bay Area and, um, we were, uh, basically partnering with various pharma companies to build, computer simulation models of various diseases. And they said to me, we want you to lead the um, type two diabetes modeling program. And I thought, that's great. What's type two diabetes? <laughs> I was, I had no idea back then. And so that was kind of my first introduction to sort of endocrinology and metabolism. Wow, that's amazing. So then did you go on and work on it, on work on
0: modeling type 2?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we developed a a pretty comprehensive model of, you know, carbohydrate, fat, and protein metabolism. And on sort of the timescales that we were looking at there were, you know, minute to minute over the course of several days to try to better understand the, you know, glucose and fatty acids and and select amino acid measurements that one one could make uh, after meals as well as during clamps and things like that in humans. And so, um, so yeah, it was a great experience. Um, really one of the things that I love about building mathematical models is that they really focus in on what the important things are to consider to explain the data that we're interested in explaining. And so it's kind of like, it's like a secret weapon to learn about the biology is if you can build it in a computer and make it function in a way that mimics the real measurements that you can make in a human being you know, that gives you a lot of insight as to what's going on and what's missing, right? So we regularly in the process of building models will test them with experiments that have never been done before and say, does the model seem to give reasonable predictions or are these predictions weird? Um, we consult with lots of people and and sometimes people will then take those up and do an experiment to test and fill in that knowledge gap, so to speak. And that's one of the real powers of models, I think, is is when they fail and when you um, can then learn something new about the biology. So then how were
0: you valid for these type two models? How were you validating them experimentally?
1: Yeah, so the company that we worked for um, did not have the resources to do that kind of uh, experimental validation. The, the nice thing about this, this whole field, though, is that there's so much good quantitative data that's already been collected and assembled over decades and decades. And so one of the key things then is to basically try to reproduce the same sorts of um, experimental results that have been done in the past. Uh, so our, our goal then was to first characterize a healthy individual that does not have diabetes of any sort progress them through various stages of impaired insulin resistance and impaired beta cell function, and then try to simulate a kind of a group of virtual patients that span the range from healthy, normal controls all the way to, you know, severe type 2 diabetes and test the robustness of our kind of experimental perturbations, whether they be, you know, designing a clinical trial for a known drug target, which has some hypothesized mechanism of action that we can implement in the computer um, to uh, basically, um, you know, just trying to design a very well-controlled physiological experiment that hadn't been done before. And so those were the exciting things. And it was a little frustrating at the time because we couldn't actually do those experiments. Um, we would give those, those results to our you know, drug company partners who would find them interesting and we would have consultants come in and they would weigh in on what they thought the results might be of that experiment. But we didn't have the ability to actually test those experimental predictions, unfortunately.
0: And what was the value to the partner, the pharma and biotech partners th- from your perspective? What were they hoping to
1: learn it's difficult because I didn't really agree with the business model <laughs> that we had at the time. And I think that was part of the reason the company ever ended up succeeding. But um so, for example, at, at first we had the subscription model where basically we would, you know, we would build this model. We'd kind of. Uh, include all of these, uh, kind of, uh, simulations and validations. And then people would, we just teach people how to use it and they would go off and do whatever they wanted. And that was a complete failure because unless you were involved in really building the model, you didn't know how to use it. And th- kind of ramping people up that way was going to be difficult. And so then we kind of formed a sort of, a wing of of people who knew enough about the model to use it. And they would kind of have a a Chinese wall between the developers like us and implementing particular trials or whatever. So I think that the best success story that we had wasn't anything like discovering a new target or something like that. But we had done a trial where basically a very well-known mechanism of action, which we could implement in the computer, and uh had good phase two data. And the question was, in phase three, how many different doses should they have in the trial? And they planned like four or five doses. And we said, look, you're not going to see a difference between two of those. So just cut two of them. Just do three. And they said, okay, we'll do four. <laughs> so they saved a little bit of money by only doing four. And then they also confirmed that we were right. The two closest doses didn't see any difference. And so it was part of validation that we were actually able to, um, you know, make a prediction that was then validated in an experiment. I didn't think it was that, that surprising of a prediction, but it was a prediction nonetheless. And they saved a little bit of money. They could have saved a little bit more money had they not done, you know, four, but had only done three of the doses. So.
0: But that's a practical, real, useful piece of information, and you can see how companies would actually look for something like that. I mean, that that could make a big difference Yeah, a company.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. The other thing that the models were really good at um, was, because we were trying to model this kind of complex, nonlinear system with lots of different feedback loops and interactions, was um, if someone had an idea for a drug target and they Couldn't quite think through all of the downstream consequences that might kind of counter that, that response. We were pretty good at killing those ideas pretty early, which is great from a company's perspective. What I think our company, uh, from the drug company's perspective at the top, but what I think our company didn't really realize was that at the level of the individuals who are then using that information, they're incentivized to get their idea through mm. all the way. And so they don't want you to kill their idea. <laughs> and so it was a very difficult proposition to go into, um, you know, the, that meeting with the head of that program and say, hey, look, here are some downstream consequences that I don't think you're aware of. And this is how they might attenuate the net result to kind of Maybe not result in anything clinically meaningful in the end. They don't want to hear stuff like that, especially if it's only in a computer, right? right. <laughs> they, 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 they need to do the trial. And so that's kind of what that business model was up against. We were really good at those kinds of things um, because it's very hard to think through the complexity of the biology and know how these different um, systems will interact and then give rise to a net result you can't just kind of pick one little pathway and think oh this is somehow rate limiting or something like that and that's all there is to it and if i affect that it'll give rise to some magical result in the end no it's impossible and
0: it's an interesting idea that there's the flawed business model right that the people bringing these things or trying to bring these things through the development pathway are incentivized to win but then the leadership probably also has the op right they're probably a little bit more Prone to, to say, well, if this isn't going to make it to the market, we want to kill it. And I've heard examples of certain companies taking risks in killing early stage programs because of things they've learned, not from mathematical modeling, right. but from other, you know, uh, biomarkers or other things. That I would
1: think, wow, that's a that's a really important decision to make based on that information. Right. No, I think I think you're right. And yeah, I don't envy those people. These are they're making. Making decisions that affect lots of people's lives, both patients and their employees of the, of the company and, and these decisions to kind of kill programs. I know many people and friends who went into pharma. I mean, these are, they're morale busters, right? I mean, people's morale is, is ruined when you kind of say they've been working on this project for like five or six years or more. And yeah, we're not going forward with that anymore. We got to. Or, or we merge with some other company and we have to figure out what it is that you're going to do next. That was, uh, yeah. So I, I, I wasn't looking forward to the kind of that sort of thing. And that's when I started looking around for either moving back to academia or. I've eventually found my place at the NIH. So
0: how did that happen? You went straight from working at this company to taking an intramural position at the NIH?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was a tenure track search at the time um in this uh newly formed, or I guess I should say renamed lab called the Laboratory of Biological Modeling, which was a group of people it used to be called the Mathematical Research Branch. Uh it was formed in the fifties. It was uh the branch that was um Basically brought scientific computing to the NIH way back when. And, um, they were revitalizing that group and they wanted some folks to, um, basically do at that time systems biology, bioinformatics type stuff. But they also wanted some dynamical systems modeling folks, which was kind of what I'd been trained to do. And the fact that I'd been doing this type 2 diabetes model didn't hurt since it was in the Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Disease Institute. The the trick was that I hadn't published anything for four years that I'd been at this company. (laughs) And I'd never published anything in the area of diabetes other than some abstracts at ADA meetings and stuff like that. Um, But the nice thing was is that we had this really great cadre of consultants that had basically worked with us over the years to kind of develop and test this model and so they were able to kind of write some really nice recommendation letters saying things like, yeah, you know, he hasn't published anything, but trust me, he kind of knows some stuff <laughs> in this area. And so, um, so I was really very lucky given my scant published research in that area. I published quite a bit in my PhD, so people could tell that I knew how to do that. But, um, yeah, they took a risk and they hired me like 15 years ago, I guess.
0: That's amazing. So just quickly tell, um, tell me what the intramural program
1: at the NIH is, is all about. I think that that
0: people would be interested to hear about that. Yeah.
1: So so the NIH is people are probably most used to thinking about it as a funding organization, right? So it's the world's largest biomedical research and funding organization. And about 10% of the total NIH budget, which is in excess of $30 billion, I believe, um, goes to what's called the intramural research program, which is basically a group of folks, um, in the scientists in these different institutes, 20 plus institutes, run their own labs. Uh, we don't write research grants. We basically have a stable source of funding and, um, we basically devote our lives to research. And we have this wonderful sort of facilities at the NIH campus in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, where it's it's basically the way I sort of describe it. It's like the ideal place to do research because we don't have the usual distractions of teaching or writing grants. Um, there's a lot of administrative nonsense, which is typical of the federal government. <laughs> but um, besides that, it's it's just it's just a really collaborative and wonderful place to do the kind of science that's hard to do in other places. And so, and they take risks on. People like myself who, um, you know, even though I was initially hired just to do the sort of mathematical modeling that I'd done before, I think that it's probably safe to assume that nowhere else but the NIH with the support of a few folks in the scientific leaderships would say, yeah, why don't you go and do a clinical trial to test one of your model predictions as opposed to. You know, you don't have that background. You can't do that sort of thing, uh, which I think would be the normal, maybe sane reaction <laughs> to something like that. But, um, I'd never even thought that that was a possibility when I got there and I was giving a talk, um, about one of the predictions of a model that I, I'd, I'd built. And the clinical director at the time said, you know, it was really interesting. Why don't you actually go out and test that idea? And I said, well, what do you mean? Uh, <laughs> he said, well, write a protocol and, we'll kind of teach you how to do that. And, and, uh and I'm like, have you seen the budget that I, I can't do it? It's like, no, no, don't worry about that. We'll figure that out later, but write a protocol and see what happens. And so that was my first sort of foray into designing a, a human research study and trial by fire, <laughs> figuring out how to do that. And so, um, but ever since, I mean, it's been just a, an amazingly rewarding experience i mean it could have gone horribly wrong right but but um but uh not in terms of patient safety or anything like that but it, it could have been a disaster i couldn't you know who knows if i was able to do this in a reasonable way or not but i didn't have any kids at the time i wasn't married it's like I mean if i'm gonna take a risk in a career this is probably the time to do it and so so how long ago was that yeah, so I'd started the study. I'd started planning for the study. That's when it was approved in probably like 2007. So I just finished my midterm tenure review. And that's when I presented this idea. And that's when I was told, well, maybe you should try to test it. And then so we actually started the study in 2009, even though they said, why don't you do it? They didn't give me any extra personnel. So it was basically me and a, a postdoc and a student basically running this trial. It took us until 2015 to actually publish it. So it took years to kind of recruit these folks. They were at the NIH Clinical Center in-house for a month. We did everything from neuroimaging to um, you know, uh, kind of detail, you know, indirect calorimetry and in chambers and I'm trying to remember if we did doubly labeled water. I don't think we did in that study, but we did tons of metabolic measurements. I, f- I figured this was a, the only study they were ever going to let me do, <laughs> so we just pack it full with as many things as I could learn how to do. We did PET, we did fMRI, we did um, we did all sorts of metabolic measurements, and yeah, it was it was a pretty crazy study. But as a result of that sort of intensive study design, it took years to complete.
0: An important theme that has come up throughout Best Known Method has been that many of our guests ended up where they did somewhat by accident, but also by putting themselves in the right place at the right time. Despite his relative lack of experience, Kevin pounced on his opportunity and learned what he needed to on the fly. Allow me to briefly explain some of the metabolic analyses Kevin just mentioned. First, neuroimaging. It sounds like what it is. They image the brain, but they use MRI to take pictures of the brain while people are doing certain activities such as eating. Indirect calorimetry is often used in nutrition and metabolism. It's basically a spot measurement of how much energy the body is burning at rest. It also can give you an idea of how much fat or carbohydrate the body is burning as well. Sometimes I refer to this as how much fuel your body burns while idling. Indirect calorimetry can be performed in a special chamber, a room, which is outfitted to measure the gases needed to calculate the energy expenditure. By doing this in a room, one can effectively measure the energy use over a much longer period of time, hours or days, or even longer. And since you can put an exercise bike or weights, or you can do push-ups in that room, you can measure the total energy expenditure, including how much people are using in active energy as opposed to just resting energy. And since you can feed people in the chamber, you can also measure the impact of what they eat on the amount of energy burned. Lastly, by feeding people a special water with two chemical labels on it, so-called doubly labeled water. One can also measure the amount of chemical labels found in the urine or other body fluids before and after the experiment, and then calculate the total amount of energy burned over an entire two-week period. These methods are very complementary and are now standard in many human nutrition studies. So I want to get back to the methods because yeah. I think there are a lot to discuss there. It's super interesting. But um, what's the budget process look like? I mean, here you are basically working at a computer, I guess, right? Yeah. And like you said, sort of resource, you didn't have a lot. I mean, you didn't didn't need a lot. Right. So how did it go from, uh, what was the process of going from, you know, you and a couple of people with computers
1: to having a big, huge clinical trial operation? (laughs) You know, so this is one of the interesting things, again, about the NIH um, intramural program, especially when it comes to clinical research, is that we don't actually get to see how much the clinical research costs. So it's the job of the clinical director and the scientific director to kind of manage the budget of the overall institute. And so what ends up happening is that every institute pays um, essentially a tax to the clinical center to fund their operations from the Department of Laboratory Medicine to the um, radiology department, to the nurses, to the nutrition staff. And the facilities, you know, whatever the bed costs are and things like that. I have no idea how much that costs. Um, basically all I know is that the each institute gets charged some something like the three year running average of whatever they used in the past three years. Um, so still to this day, my research budget, when you kind of look at it on paper, basically all it does is cover assays that aren't conducted by the Department of Laboratory Medicine. That's pretty much it. So it's, it still looks like a tiny budget on paper, but the studies that we conduct are, you know, cost probably millions of dollars. And but who um, approves that? Who approves that? Great question. So it goes through a pretty rigorous set of scientific review. Um, so both inside the NIH and then outside scientific review that. Those reviews get submitted to the clinical director who will then make a decision about, you know, whether or not this study is worthwhile doing. And he's the one who knows how much stuff costs and how much other things are going on and what the competing interests are. And all we know is we get the green light to submit to the IRB or not. And then, of course, it has to go through the the IRB for ethics and safety and all these sorts of things. So we are sort of shielded from this process. And of course, there's iterations, you know, if we get some negative scientific reviews, you know, we'll either abandon that project. And it's like, yeah, you're right. This is a crazy idea. Or we'll go back and reiterate and kind of address those reviews. But at the end of the day, the way I like to sort of think about it is the NIH is the best place in the world to be if you have the support of the scientific leadership at the top, right? So they're the ones who control pretty much everything in terms of your day-to-day life of doing research. Uh, if those folks support you, it's absolutely the best place in the world to be. Um, If they don't support you, it could possibly be the worst place in the world to be because you're not going to be able to apply for outside funding to support your lab or something like that. And you, you could literally get your research budget cut to zero. They could move you off to a different building somewhere. In fact, that's kind of where our um, former, that mathematical research branch had been basically decimated before it was revitalized. Um, a previous scientific director said, what are these guys doing with their computers? We want to we we're a biomedical research organization, didn't understand the concept of doing mathematical modeling. And so these guys were basically forced off campus and many of them naturally quit found other jobs and the few people that were there when a new scientific director came in and said hey we need people doing mathematical modeling said hey there's these two guys still over here in this other building off campus and they said yeah let's give them a couple of tenure track positions and let's move them back on campus and and give them some funding and um yeah that was kind of how i got my job essentially
0: that's amazing so let's rewind for a minute because we you went from you know Giving a presentation to doing a clinical trial. So, what was the question that you were hoping to answer?
1: Yeah. So, and that's so that study. You know, we had built this uh, this mathematical model of carbohydrate, fat, and protein metabolism. And um, again, one of the purposes of building models is to make predictions of experiments that have never been done before. And so, the prediction that we'd made was to test um, the results of a feeding trial. Where, um, and this, it's interesting because it, it bears on a lot of the topics that I've been subsequently interested in, um, which is, you know, doesn't matter what the carbohydrate versus fat proportion of the diet is in terms of energy metabolism or body fat changes. And so what. I'd noticed in the past is that there have been, you know, dozens and dozens of trials comparing low carb versus low fat diets. But what's been unclear is that every, lots of things are changing in those diets. So protein levels t- tended to be higher in the lower carb diets. Fat and carbs were very different. And it was never clear if they were really isocaloric because these were m- mostly free living people. And so what had never been done, and this was the design of the study and what we predicted in our model ahead of time, was to take some people and just selectively cut from their baseline diet carbs, keep fat and protein constant, versus cutting fat, keeping carbs and protein constant. Isocaloric reductions in both carbs and fat, and what we said was we would design it in the same people and answer the question, um, you know, how did fuel utilization change? And so that was the primary outcome of our study. And and then subsequently how, given that the calories and the fat and carbs were balanced in this way, did one diet lead to more or less loss of body fat than the other diet? And so we made this prediction. We actually used the model to kind of help design the trial and power it to see how long would we have to have people to kind of detect this effect. We actually published in the clinical protocol the prediction of the model so no one could accuse us later of saying oh well you just kind of fiddled with it later so um so yes that was the idea and then we basically uh appended a whole bunch of other things because i figured we might not ever get a chance to do another study so we were doing neuroimaging on these folks before and after these diets and and whatnot uh some of that's still being written up actually but but the
0: primary one was how long were they in in the metabolic ward?
1: Yeah, so they were in for a pair of two-week periods. So they came in five days on a sort of baseline diet to kind of get them, you know, in approximate nutrient balance. And then we would either cut carbs by 30% of their total calories, so roughly 800 calories a day on average, of carb restriction, keeping fat and protein at baseline. And then they'd wash out from anywhere from two to four weeks, come back, repeat the same first five days, and then get the alternate diet. In this case, it would be the reduced fat diet but the order was randomized
0: and so and, some people came in and got the carb restricted diet first and then got the fat restricted diet and they would flip-flop exactly basically
1: yeah it. exactly right
0: it was a total of two weeks and they were what was the total calorie intake that they were getting
1: so a uh, baseline if i it's been a while yeah. since i've actually looked at this is something like 2700 calories a day and then we were cutting 800 or so of that either selectively from carb restriction or I selectively see. from fat restriction. I so see. they're in a negative energy, or they're in negative energy balance, but f- from a dietary perspective, selectively from restricting carbs versus restricting fat. And so what did you find? So what we found was that, um, well, in a, it actually helps to kind of put this in the context of what some of the alternative predictions were, because um, there's this, Carbohydrate insulin model that people are probably familiar with, which suggests that carbs via their effect on driving insulin secretion have a major effect on on body fat uh, regulation and also energy expenditure measurements. And so. Um, and potentially appetite as well. And so one of the predictions of that model, which is different than the predictions of our mathematical model, which is that the reduced carbohydrate diet via its um, effect to reduce insulin secretion should lead to preferential loss of body fat. And And in our mathematical model, one of the things that We thought that certainly is the case in our mathematical model. We also said in in terms of our primary endpoint that that should lead to a increase in fat oxidation and therefore driving a negative fat balance despite the fact that you haven't cut any fat in the diet and that that should sort of start to plateau after a week or so on this um, reduced carb diet what our mathematical model predicted uh, which uh wasn't really addressed by the carbohydrate insulin model um is that if you just cut fat in people's diet nothing should happen to the amount of fat oxidation that occurs or carb oxidation for that matter you should basically it's almost like your body doesn't sense that you cut out you know a large quantity of fat from from the diet it just keeps plugging away just oxidizing the same amount of fat and carbs as it did before and so that was the primary prediction of our model, and as a result of that, um, the model predicted that there would be a slight advantage to the reduced fat diet because you're basically cutting 800 calories of fat out of the diet, you're burning the same amount, and therefore you go into this negative fat balance, and it happens to be a little bit greater than the reduced carb diet because it takes some time to ramp up the fat oxidation, as well as the fact that there's some effect on protein metabolism of the reduced insulin and some effect, very small effect on energy expenditure as a result of thermic effect of food and things like that. <clears throat> so turned out that our model was right and that that's exactly what we saw. And because there are these very slight differences, despite pretty major differences in insulin secretion, um, we also kind of put it in the context of a test of the carbohydrate insulin model, because here we saw diametrically opposite predictions of the carbohydrate insulin model, despite the reduce, reduction in carbs and the reduction in insulin secretion, we saw a slight, uh, less, slightly less body fat loss. Um, and we also saw that energy expenditure decreased, um, as opposed to when you cut the fat, energy expenditure did not decrease. And so both of those predictions, the energy expenditure and the body fat predictions were different than what had been, at that point, become quite a popular idea for an alternative theory of obesity.
0: I just want to make sure people are clear on this. So these are people who are coming to live on campus at the NIH, and you're feeding them. That's right. And that's the only food they get. That's it. Yeah. And,
1: and they have to eat all of it and nothing. And they're observed to do that for the most part. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. they're on a specially designed unit at the NIH Clinical Standard Center called the Metabolic Clinical Research Unit um where the staff is extremely well trained to kind of monitor people's they can't leave the unit without being escorted they basically have all their food delivered to them their doors are open they're observed you know kind of eating they have to, in that particular study they had to eat everything on their plate they were given spatulas to to finish everything they didn't have a choice and um yeah, it's extremely well controlled in that regard. And when you start, you
0: measure do you measure their basal energy expenditure, their resting energy expenditure? Or uh, do you just observe what they're eating in their normal state?
1: Yeah, no, what we did was we basically um we would put them in the respiratory chamber. And um so they spent two of the first five days when they were in balance, they spent two of those days in the respiratory chamber and then three more days during the period where they were um, on either the reduced carb or reduced fat diet. And so those respiratory chamber measurements were our primary outcome of that study. And now that I remember, we also did doubly labeled water, which we analyze afterwards because it takes time to kind of collect the samples and analyze. And, and we were able to show that in that first five days, these folks were eating the same number of calories because we were providing them as they were burning. So they were in energy balance in that initial period of time. And then well, obviously we cut carbs or cut fat and then their energy expenditure. And in.
0: and so, and sorry, I, n- yeah. I know you said this. I just want to make sure I got it right. You cut a fixed amount of calories or you cut a percentage of their?
1: We cut a percentage. We cut, It was a 30% calorie restricted yeah. diet, either all coming from carb restriction or all coming from fat restriction in random order.
0: And over that period of time, did they lose weight? Yes. Yes. yes
1: they lost weight. And they all lost some fat. Um, They all lost fat. They all lost weight. They lost more weight on the reduced carb diet, but less body fat.
0: And they did, just so I'm clear on this, they did actually... Have a reduction in, in insulin. Yes,
1: so you- it was a twenty three percent reduction in insulin secretion. So, because we had them this whole time, what we did was we uh, collected twenty four hour urine and and measured C peptide excretion. Which, if people don't know, it's a peptide that's co secreted on a one to one basis with insulin, but it's only cleared by the in, by the kidneys. Uh, as opposed to insulin, which is cleared by a variety of tissues. And so if you just count how much C peptide is collected in the urine over a twenty four hour basis, you have a a good index of how much insulin was secreted. And so it went down by twenty-three percent in the reduced carb diet. It did not change compared to baseline in the reduced fat diet.
0: And what happened to the resting their resting metabolic rate?
1: So the resting metabolic rate, so what we measured was sleeping metabolic rate, which is a little bit more precise. Um, sleeping metabolic rate went down in the reduced carb diet, and it was unchanged from baseline in the reduced fat diet.
0: And roughly how, what was the magnitude? Oh, we're talking very tiny differences, right. like less than 100 calories a day. Kevin designed an experiment to test a mathematical model he had built and worked on when he first came to the NIH. Remember, he was hired to do mathematical modeling but along the way, someone suggested that he validate the model he was building experimentally. Kevin did not think he would get a chance to do a second experiment, so he put a lot of time and energy into planning the first one. The goal was to determine the relative effect of cutting either fat or carbohydrate calories from a diet. This was and remains a very exciting and also controversial area of nutrition science. What Kevin and his team sought to do was to measure the amount of fat loss at the end of a two-week period where people were randomized to receive reduced calorie diets, either cutting just fat and then a break and then cutting just carbs or the other way around. And he predicted that while the rate of fat burning would go up in people who got carb-restricted or low-carb diets relative to the fat-restricted diets, he also predicted that the difference in fat energy would offset that difference and would therefore result in a net greater fat loss in the fat-restricted diets, the low-fat diets, versus the carb-restricted diets. And this is just what he saw. Again, the rate of fat burning went up in the low-carb diets. This is critical. But since they were eating more fat, the overall change in body fat resulted in a greater loss in the low-fat diet, because they ate less fat. I also wanted to touch on something very briefly that Kevin mentioned, which was also mentioned last week. That is the carbohydrate-insulin model. This is a theory that suggests that eating excess carbs leads to greater insulin production by the pancreas, which then leads to less energy burned, less food consumed, or both. So the prediction is that if you can reduce the insulin by cutting carbs, you will improve energy balance by increasing the rate of energy burned or by reducing the amount of energy taken in, or both. Without getting too bogged down, Kevin and David Ludwig are on opposite sides of this discussion and mostly don't agree when it comes to this specific scientific question. What I will say is that my interpretation of the experimental evidence I have seen is that there is a distraction from the fact that almost everyone, including Kevin, agrees on. Low-carb diets do lead to weight loss, and they do lead to improved insulin and glucose homeostasis, and are a very effective way to help treat patients with type 2 diabetes. Why that is remains to be seen. It is certainly true that eating low-carb diets leads to reduced insulin levels. What is not clear is if that matters, if that leads to the weight loss. I'll leave that to the experts to settle that specific question. But editorially, I would say that I am not entirely sure how much that matters. I know that you did another study. We probably won't have time to get into the details of it, but it got a lot of attention in the press because it was about this TV show that people (laughs) went on and lost a bunch of weight called The Biggest Loser. And I think the take-home I remember from that one was that over the period of time between when they started and lost a bunch of weight that their resting metabolic rate went down dramatically. Is yeah. Right? Do yeah. I remember
1: that right? Yeah. set many hundreds of calories a day. So something like 700 calories a day in total on average.
0: And so is that just a magnitude thing? Is that the reason why you didn't observe a decrease in resting metabolic uh, rate in this other study?
1: Yeah, a couple things. One is that they were in a much more severe negative energy balance in the Biggest Loser study. But even when they weren't in negative energy balance later, um, many years after the, the fact of being on this crazy TV program, their resting energy expenditure had still been reduced by a huge amount, which is still... More or less unexplained, which I think is kind of fascinating. I love love it when we can't fully explain things. We have a hypothesis about what might have been occurring, but yeah, it was still very much suppressed. And so the the hypothesis that I think is kind of intriguing and is basically developed by uh, a guy named Herman Pontzer, who's now at Duke University. Uh, he has this constrained energy expenditure model. Um, the idea there being that if you Increase your energy cost for one aspect of your energy budget, for example, physical activity. You increase physical activity, uh, evolutionarily speaking, it's a good idea to kind of have a predictable total calorie expenditure. Um, So you'll probably turn down your energy budget in other areas and one of those areas might be resting metabolic rate one of the things that the biggest loser folks did which is not common for most people engaging in a weight loss program is they engaged in crazy amounts of physical activity so the idea being that perhaps because they were doing so much physical activity and they actually continue to do a lot of physical activity many years later that that has suppressed their resting metabolic rate as part of this constrained energy expenditure model It's just a hypothesis, but it kind of makes sense
0: but it's testable and you would predict maybe that if they didn't mm-hmm. exercise quite so vigorously that they wouldn't have that decrease or they wouldn't get stuck there. Maybe they'd have the decrease, but not stay there. That was what was so amazing, right? They yeah. they were still there, you, you know, way after the fact.
1: They would probably have an appropriate resting metabolic rate for their change in body composition. And what we found was that, um, you know, you, larger people burn more calories at rest, right? So, and it's a function of both their fat mass and their fat-free mass if they've changed their fat mass and fat-free mass, you have an expected reduction or increase depending on the direction you're going. Uh, in resting metabolic rate, what these folks had was a greater than expected reduction given their new rest, their new fat mass and fat-free mass. That might have been dissipated had they not have still engaged in quite a bit of physical activity. Got it.
0: There, there are so many things that we could touch on and we have li- limited time, so I want to make sure I hit a couple of the highlights. So, I do want to get to the processed food, the ultra processed sure. food study that you just published, which has gotten a lot of attention and is really interesting. But I want to ask you, because I haven't read everything you've done. Did you ever look at appetite? I know we, we chatted about appetite a little bit beforehand, but did you have you ever looked at the effect of macronutrients on, on appetite per se?
1: So um, so we've asked via questionnaires before, um, both with the ketogenic diets um, and at least questionnaires are a pretty blunt instrument. And we haven't published that data yet, but you know, it, they're not that impressive. Let's just say that. We, right now, um, we have a study that's going on at the NIH, which is a similar design in terms of structural design as the ultra processed food study. Um, but instead of comparing ultra processed and unprocessed foods, what we're doing is we're comparing two uh, unprocessed diets, which have a common sort of base of non-starchy vegetables. And one of them is a, um, 10% carb. Uh, diet uh, that's animal-based, and the other one is a 10% fat that's uh, plant-based, so it's actually a vegan diet. So the question is, um, ad libitum, they can eat as much or as little food as they want for a pair of two-week periods in random order. Which one do they eat less of? Which one modulates appetite? There's obviously going to be big differences in things like energy density and things like, uh, you know, obviously the macronutrients are very different. But that sort of head-to-head comparison of you know ad libitum energy intake over a pair of two-week periods, uh, where we track every morsel of food that these folks eat, that that hasn't been done before, and so we're really interested in the results of that study.
0: And I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, especially by people uh, you know in, in the low carb world. But do you think two weeks is long enough?
1: Long enough for what, I guess is the question, right? Well, so I guess let me ask it. Let me ask you this.
0: Let me ask it a different question, which is do you believe there's such a thing as fat adaptation or keto adaptation?
1: For some things, there are. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. And I guess the question is for if your primary outcome is to look at changes in appetite Mm -hmm. and food intake. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, you know, I started this low carb diet, but I was hungry for, for six weeks before I, and I didn't lose a a bit of weight before I, uh, and before I was fat adapted, right? That the appetite effects, at least from the reports that I've seen and even the clinical trials, that happens very quickly. Um, I think the question about, um, whether or not you've, maximized your fat oxidation rate uh, in a given amount of endurance exercise, that does seem to take a longer period of time. Whether or not you've maximized your fat oxidation rate in day-to-day life um, or kind of non-exercise periods, I think that that seems to take place with, at least according to our studies and several other people's studies, within a week or so. Ketogenesis, for example, we know from tracer studies dating back decades, that's maximized within a week. Ketone levels in the blood change, but the actual ketogenesis rate is is maximized and the ketone levels in the blood change because you're actually using less ketones and you're burning less fat (laughs) over time, not because you're increasing it, because your metabolic rate tends to decrease um, in those starvation experiments that people have measured those values before. But um, so anyway, so I, th- I think there's lots of things that change. The question is, for the things that you're interested in, your primary endpoints, um, are you giving enough time? And in this particular study, since we're looking primarily at appetite and ad libitum food intake, yeah, I've, I've never heard somebody say, you know, I started this low-carb diet, I stuck with it for six weeks, didn't lose a pound, and, and was hungry all the time. And then all of a sudden, my hunger disappeared, and I was able to cut my calories.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it- I guess if you had unlimited constraint, un- unlimited budget, unlimited time, and you'd do it a little bit longer, but
1: yeah, you know right. what,
0: you, um, you can't do everything. So, uh, but insulin definitely goes down within two weeks. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And so that's an interesting idea—is that you know maybe insulin hasn't isn't having anything to do on fat oxidation, you know, as what you've demonstrated, but maybe insulin does have an effect
1: on appetite. It's possible. Well, insulin does have an effect on fat oxidation. I mean, we we clearly sh- it is just a question of whether on balance has a a fat balance, right? Yeah. If you account, once you account for the the fact that the reduced fat group cut the fat in the diet, they didn't change fat oxidation, whereas the reduced carb group, low insulin increase of fat oxidation, and that sort of plateaued within the first week. So insulin clearly has a big role to play in determining whether or not you're burning fat or carbs. Um, it's just a question of does that it's one of the mistakes I see people make a lot is they equate fat oxidation or increased fat oxidation or fat burning with loss of body fat. That does not necessarily, those things don't necessarily go together.
0: In the time between when we recorded this conversation and today, the study Kevin described is now complete. We are all eagerly awaiting the results and we'll have to check back with him to discuss the findings. Consider this a huge tease. Gosh, we could go on forever because I could get distracted. <laughs> I'm about to get distracted by uh, asking you qu- all these questions about growth hormone. Um, I tell you what, why don't we st- we'll pivot here and talk sure. a little bit about this ultra-processed food. Tell me about the kind of idea behind this study and, and you know, summarize what you what you
1: found. Yeah, sure. So, you know, nutrition science has been focusing on nutrients for decades and maybe maybe more than decades, maybe a century or so. And yet, there's this kind of newer idea, uh, and this critique of that that concept called nutritionism, right? That foods are more than the sum of their nutrients. And folks like Michael Pollan have pop- popularized this idea that you know you can't just break up food into their respective nutrients the way that nutrition science has done for for decades and decades. You have to kind of look at the whole foods that they or the the f- food like substances, as he likes to call them, uh, that are delivering those nutrients. You know, as we kind of discussed before, I'm a physicist by training. I'm kind of a reductionist. I I didn't like this idea that there was something other than (laughs) the nutrients. And then there's about 10 years ago, this group from Brazil decided, you know, we're not going to talk about nutrients that much. We don't care about saturated fat. We don't care about sugar. We don't care about these other things. We care about processing. And they decided that they were interested in diet quality and that their proxy for diet quality was the extent and purpose of, of processing. Again, I don't necessarily think that that is a link that is necessary, but um, – that was what was out there. And I was very skeptical of this idea because if you press people about, well, what is it about ultra-processed foods that makes them bad or makes them makes people want to eat more? They'll say, well, they're, they tend to be high in salt, sugar, and fat and low in fiber. And that's kind of what leads people to eat more. Well, you just listed a bunch of nutrients to me. So is it the salt, sugar, fat, and fiber or is it the processing? And um, I kind of saw, seen that this notion of classifying foods um, and looking at these large epidemiological studies of uh, relating ultra-processed food consumption to a variety of different kinds of uh, negative health consequences. And yet there'd never been a randomized controlled trial testing any effect of ultra-processed food per se. So basically, I I thought, well, let's let's do something in this area and let's match the diets for the things that people normally consider to be um, relevant in terms of food intake and and weight gain, the salt, the sugar, the fat, the fiber, um, as well as the carbs and uh, total fat and and uh, if, as much as we try to to do this protein and uh, and yet we'll kind of use the same classification system for ultra processed foods and try to make one diet contain most of the calories, the vast majority of the calories coming from ultra-processed foods, you know, prepackaged, ready ready-to-heat, ready-to-eat um, foods uh, versus whole foods on the other diet. Again, match for these various nutrients. And so, yeah, I didn't, I, I kind of suspected that, you know, if the nutrients, the salt, the fat, the sugar, the fiber were the things that were different, then if that was driving increased food intake, then we shouldn't see it in this study. And so I was kind of surprised that when we ran, we brought these 20 people, 10 men and 10 women to the NIH Clinical Center where they lived with us for a month. And in random order, they basically were exposed to these two diets and this very simple instructions, eat as much or as little as you want. We found a huge effect that people ate 500 calories a day on average more with the ultra processed diet compared to the unprocessed diet, despite the fact that they were matched for all these nutrients. So. Yeah, I was kind of wrong. <laughs> and I was surprised that I was wrong. <laughs> um I'm happy to be wrong, but uh especially when it's our data that proves me wrong. <laughs> but you know, it's it's fascinating. So now the question is what was it? You know, I still I'm somewhat skeptical that it's the processing per se. I really want to know what it is about those foods that drove this big effect on these folks when they were just eating however much or as little as they wanted.
0: I guess there are so many possibilities that could explain it. I mean, did it look – I mean, maybe one sort of simple explanation is that it's easier to digest. I mean, that's something you hear about all the time, right? Like the white flour is less healthy because it's stripped – you've stripped off the, you know, the coat. And so it's faster to digest and your blood sugar goes up Mm -hmm. faster. I'm assuming you must have measured – some extent some a bunch of other stuff in your study do you see anything that points you at a hypothesis that you could test? yeah
1: i mean we have several hypotheses at this point um from the most intriguing from a biological standpoint, uh, one of the things that we noticed was that when these folks were on the unprocessed diet, there's a hormone called PYY, which is secreted by the gut, which is an appetite-suppressing hormone. And spontaneously, on the unprocessed diet, that the levels of that hormone in the blood went up. And conversely, uh, a hunger-inducing hormone called ghrelin actually decreased on the unprocessed diet for reasons we don't understand. Uh, and it's, those were exploratory endpoints. I don't, I don't really even know if those are real measurements, but they are very interesting in the fact that they, the changes in both the hunger hormone and the appetite suppressing hormone would support the ability of those folks to uh, decrease their overall calorie intake when they are exposed to this um, unprocessed diet. So we need, there's more work to be done to better understand if that's a real effect uh, and also what the mechanism of that is. There are several other things that were different between the diets. Um, So we match for, you know, salt, fat, sugar, and and carbs, and protein, and fiber, but the kinds of sugar were different, right? So obviously in the ultra-processed diet, there was a lot of added sugar, but almost not, no added sugar in the in the unprocessed diet. Um, saturated fat was very different. Omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of the fatty acids were very different. The other things that were different were that um, the energy density of the solid foods uh, the non-beverage foods um, were quite a bit higher in the ultra-processed uh, case compared to the unprocessed. So eating the same mass of food would naturally lead you to then increase the total calorie intake. Although they had a lot more beverages because we were dissolving fiber in the beverages, and they ended up, uh, the meals that we presented to them, if you include the beverages, were matched for energy density. So, um and then finally, one of the things that was kind of interesting was that, um the uh, people ate the ultra processed foods much more quickly. So we were covertly timing how long people were taking to eat the meals. And um, maybe because the textural properties of this ultra processed foods, it's softer, it's um, not as difficult to chew and swallow. People ate. More calories and then they ate those calories much more quickly uh, than the unprocessed foods, which tended to be crunchier and, you know, have lots of intact foods that, that take a little bit more work to, to chew and swallow. Was it more palatable? I mean, did they tell you that or did you ask? Yeah. You know, that was when we saw the effect, that was like, I thought that's got to be the most obvious explanation. Um, but we had people rating the meals and, um, when we looked back at the data, they didn't rate the pleasantness of the meals any differently which as far as i'm concerned that's pretty good news right it wasn't uh, suggested that if people actually did switch from a highly processed diet to an unprocessed diet they wouldn't necessarily enjoy their meals any less which is kind of good news but it doesn't explain the effects that we saw now who knows whether or not those kind of self-reported pleasantness ratings are you know really truly indicating what's going on in the reward centers of their brain or not Um, or if they're trying to just you know make us happy although there's no incentive for them to make us happy <laughs> in terms of rating the foods equally pleasant and we didn't we didn't care know <laughs> what they thought but um yeah. So I, I don't know. I think it's it's kind of interesting that there was no reported difference in in pleasantness of the meals.
0: Well, it's a huge, I put it in perspective because I don't think it's, you know, 500 calories sounds like, you know, it's just a number, but, but that's a massive difference, right? I mean, I, yeah. is it, I don't even know of another
1: similar study where you've seen a magnitude of change like that it is a very large difference in in calorie intake and uh, you know i don't think it would necessarily be sustained over you know months and months or, or years and years you would expect you know these sort of feedback circuits to kick in that regulate food intake but they would translate into pretty large differences in in weight over time probably enough to explain on average the weight gain that's that people have experienced over the course of the obesity epidemic and of course it's no accident that You know, the rise in prevalence of ultra processed foods in the marketplace has kind of mirrored the, you know, increasing prevalence of obesity. Although that's just a correlation, not causation. At least our, because ours was a randomized controlled trial, we can at least say in this case, um, you know, the ultra processed diet that we provided to people did cause them to increase their calorie intake by an average of 500 calories a day. By the way, there were some people who had more than 1,500 calories a day different. And there are other people who are completely immune to this. They ate the same number of calories on both, and we have no idea what explains those differences. Well, that's interesting. Yeah.
0: One of the major reasons I wanted to talk with Kevin was to discuss his recent and very highly publicized study on processed food. It was interesting to hear his perspectives on the expectations for the study and how the results defied them. But the results have an important implication for what we know about how the obesity epidemic happened. There are additionally important questions that remain to be answered. But the bottom line is that as best as one can tell, when you keep all of the nutritionals the same, but only vary how processed the food is, it has a gigantic impact on how much people eat. Is it hormonal? Is it about palatability? Who knows? But what we do know is that if we eat less of the processed crap, we will all be much better off okay so at the end i just want to ask you a few kind of um i'm going to put you on the spot sure okay you have kids yeah i always love to put this in the perspective of kids so you know knowing that we have a very limited understanding of sort of all of these things that you you've offered a lot i think other people have done great experiments and offered a lot but we're still stuck in this world of knowing less than we would like to know and uh but we all have to eat right so how do you feed your kids
1: yeah so i have two kids Um, and, uh, one is four and the other one's almost two. Mm -hmm. Um, the two-year-old has an amazingly good diet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, 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 it's fabulous. And my four-year-old also used to have an amazingly good diet. Lots of vegetables, just, uh, lots of whole foods. Um, it's, and I don't know what changed in my four-year-old, but clearly he has like fallen into the path of the, you know, chicken nuggets, chicken strips, you know, French fries, only one pizzeria in the entire planet, as far as he's concerned, makes real pizza. He's gotten so picky with food. It's, it's fascinating. And, um, you know, we keep doing what people tell us to do, you know, put, put the good stuff out and make sure they taste it and keep tasting it. <laughs> and, and if you don't like it, okay. I understand we're not going to force you to eat it, but we're just going to keep putting it out there. And it's, it's a struggle for sure. Um, and, you know, that's kind of one of the things that we were really trying to be careful of in our ultra processed food paper was to kind of point out that because they constitute such a large fraction of calories that are eaten in this country, especially by those in low socioeconomic classes, you know, you can't at this point think of, even if we had definitive solid evidence that these are, these foods are causing these deleterious health aspects, outcomes, you can't just tax this stuff, right? Um, if you did that, you'd piss off a heck of a lot of poor people, <laughs> as well as parents who are struggling with the same sorts of things that we're struggling with. And, and yet we somehow have to incentivize, uh, both people and families and, um, children to kind of try the things that we think are healthier for them and to make them more palatable, make them the, the default option that they, they want to try and want to, want to eat and, and are still tasty and convenient and all those other things.
0: Well, it's hard because those foods, you know, despite the fact that my dad is a cardiologist and was a cardiologist when I was a kid growing up and when, when we went out to dinner when I was a kid, the place we most often went, went was Burger King. Right. And there's a reason for that, right? I mean, he wasn't making a lot of money. It's cheap and it's really tasty. They're, the food is engineered to taste really good. It's also calorie dense. And I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing. They, they, there is a science to what they've done. I don't think oh, sure. it's an accident that it's all ended up being the way it's been.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's, it's definitely, um, this sort of thing that families fight with all the time, especially with small kids of, you know, what we don't want to do and this is what we struggle with right now is we don't want to make separate meals for every member of the right. family right this is yep. insane <laughs> and yet the they the fact that ultra processed convenience foods make that even possible um is you know part of the problem right it's like i i I don't remember growing up and having a separate meal as my my parents right i mean that just did not happen. And yet we know that, you know, with our four year old now, if we just put out what we're having for dinner and what our two year old is eating, we're just going to get the complaints, right? It's like, well, I want this and I want that. And, and you, you can only, you know, at the end of the day, you're exhausted, right? And you know that there's chicken nuggets sitting in the freezer yeah. and you want to shut the kid up and yeah. give him the chicken yeah. nuggets. And as long as he tries everything else that's on his plate, Okay, you got to feed them. But uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I know that's probably not the right decision. Well, so
0: this p- pivots pretty well to the, I'll make this the second to last question sure. I'm going to ask you, which is, what do you think about this possibility of personalized nutrition? Do you think there's such a thing or, and that
1: it's legitimate and and real? You know, I think that, well, first of all, I mean, I think that we all understand that there's immense inter-individual variability in how people respond to to different diets, and then I would say that the vast majority of that variability we just don't understand, and um, and so until we understand it, I think that it's probably premature to kind of make definitive sort of scientific claims that you know we can actually make reasonable recommendations based on some measurement that we make on people as opposed to just trying a bunch of stuff out. Um, so in that sense, personalized nutrition has always been around, right? It's like people try stuff out until they find something that works for them. I think the question that is open from a scientific perspective is, can we predict in advance you know, what diet is going to work for what person? There's only certain things that we can do that for. And right now, those. Yeah. We, we, we don't have a good explanation for why people respond to one kind of diet versus another kind of diet.
0: I guess that's what I'm getting at yeah. is what you described, that there were these people who had 1500 calorie increases in yeah. in food on the ultra processed diet, but then some people didn't have any, it would be great to think that
1: we might be able to begin to untangle that a little bit. No, I agree. I think is. that that's a, that's definitely a subject of great interest to me. I mean, I, even going back to the things like the diet fits trial that Christopher Gardner did, you know, he's, it he was, one of the larger prospective studies that was trying to figure out whether or not we could predict ahead of time people who would respond better to a low-carb versus a low-fat diet. And um, most of those predictions were based on retrospective analyses of previous studies that had said, you know, if you look at this subgroup of people who had this higher insulin concentration after a glucose tolerance test, they did way better on a low-carb diet um, whereas people who didn't have as big an insulin response did better on a low fat diet. And then, okay, that's great. That's a hypothesis now. And he went out and tested that. And yeah, there was no way to predict ahead of time. And so now he can obviously mine that data set to find out what the next hypothesis might be to test. But I think that, you know, one of the things that even in that study, if people aren't familiar with it, you know, it's a year long study of giving people advice to go on a, you know, an unprocessed low-carb versus an unprocessed low-fat diet and as low in carb or as fat as they could go on an individual basis. And there's this huge variability that was observed. And one of the things that we like to think is that that variability has a biological reason. It's a plausible hypothesis. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of investment right now in trying to, trying to understand that. But there's also an alternative, potentially ex- interesting explanation, which is that it's not biological at all. It was, you know, had you randomized the person who did really well to the low-carb diet, maybe they would have done equally well on the low-fat diet. They were in the right spot in their life. They, you know, didn't have, you know, a bunch of craziness going on. They weren't going through a divorce or something like that. Um, and they had the support of their family and friends those social factors might make as much difference, if not more difference than any biological factors. And I think that much less research is going on in that area than, than is uh, probably deserved, especially when it comes to kind of getting people to stick to that diet over a long period of time, that's going to be probably more relevant on the social aspects rather than the biological aspects. Fascinating.
0: All right. Last question. And normally what I ask people, when I ask this question, I say, "Well, what have if somebody drops you know a huge pot of money on the ground and says you can do whatever experiment you want to do, but you you kind of live in an environment where you have an unlimited not unlimited yeah. but you have a relatively <laughs> unlimited um uh, amount of resources to do experiments So, what without telling us exactly like what your next big one is going to be what what do you think is the next the killer experiment that you'd like to see done or you'd like to
1: do yourself? Let me make it to actually take a step back and okay. not talk about a specific experiment, okay. but, but talk about something. And I'm going to, I'm writing a perspective article right now and I'll detail this more when that comes out. But, you know, I think that one of the problems in nutrition science right now is that most, even randomized controlled trials, which everybody agrees are kind of the gold standard, um, is that they're not randomized controlled trials of diet, they're randomized controlled trials of diet advice. And we don't have good biomarkers or ways to assess people's diet when they're not in a lab like ours at the NIH. You know, as great as our facilities are, we can only house and feed a very small number of people at a time. And if you're going to develop better methods for actually measuring people's food intake um, when they're not in a lab, you have to validate them with measurements that you make when they are in a lab. And knowing how different uh, races and different age groups are, do, are performing on those with those new technologies is going to require a large number of people to be studied. So I think what we really need is a facility to house and feed large numbers of people for prolonged periods of time that could be used by investigators around the country. Uh, basically, a national institute of, you know, controlled feeding or something like that, um, where basically we could, uh, you know, at the same time we were designing controlled feeding studies or ad libitum feeding studies where we can do the same kinds of things that we can do on a small scale at the NIH on a much larger scale and, you know, run dozens of people at a time we could be testing various new biomarkers or methodologies for actually measuring what people eat so that we could then deploy those new technologies in large randomized control trials or even observational epidemiological studies. Until we have a facility where we can actually measure what people eat and validate those kinds of new tools that are being developed, we're kind of stuck in the same place with nutrition science. And I think if we had that facility And we had a staff that was dedicated to running those kinds of studies and that people could apply for research grants to run studies in this facility and recruit from around the world uh, volunteers to join. I think that that would be a huge leap forward in the science, um, both in terms of better understanding the physiology of actual diet changes, as well as developing technologies to actually improve diet assessment in people who aren't in such facilities in the future. So that's what I think needs to be done. And, um, and I don't have any power (laughs) to do that. I don't have any money to do that, but I think that that would be the next huge leap forward for nutrition science that would not just affect studies that were done in that center, but would develop the kinds of methods that we would need to better understand how diet really does affect people and not just how diet advice affects people.
0: And just to be clear, that's, effectively what you have now, but
1: just much bigger, much larger scale. Yeah. And, and part of the problem with what we have now is again, you know, there's a, we have a limited ability to kind of, it's a hospital ward essentially, right? It's, that's what it is. Um You could do a better job than that. Uh, and, and, you know, we have to work hard to kind of keep people entertained and keep them, um, you know, motivated to stay with us for, you know, the extended periods of time. Um I think if you had like cohorts of Dozens of people coming in at once, and the camaraderie that you would have from that um, would be really helpful in keeping people motivated to to do these studies over long periods of time. I think that if you had, and if you had a staff that was. Basically running these studies constantly, right? And you had a, the ability to kind of stagger them out and you, you have lots of different investigators as opposed to, you know, the handful that we have right now at the NIH where we then have periods of boom where we're, you know, at full capacity and then bust, we're writing up our papers and, you know, nobody's in the unit. Um, that causes some concern among the staff, right? Um, so, so yeah, so I think that, we could do a better job of this and really open up these kinds of studies to a much wider group of individuals who have much better ideas than I do for the next experiment.
0: And so you're a mathematical modeler. Have you done a a back of the envelope calculation to what that's going (laughs)
1: to cost? I think it depends. I mean, I think it depends if you're talking about a completely new building with buying the land and whatnot. Um, We have some interesting ideas for buildings that would not need Purchasing of land, but would just need renovating and would be, uh, I think ideal locations because they're actually away from, you know, you, people can't run across the street and go to the Burger King, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. They're isolated. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think it's probably in the tens of millions of dollars, uh, for the facility renovations themselves. Um, but then obviously there's the staff and, and whatnot. And, and then you'd have to get the buy-in from, I think it would be, have to be, you know, at a very large level. Um, you know, I, I, don't know if industry would be involved, but who knows, but I think that that's, that's what nutrition science really needs to kind of make, the, make the next leap forward. Awesome.
0: Listen, thank you so much. Okay. I appreciate
1: it. Yeah. My pleasure.
0: I hope you all enjoyed this conversation with Kevin Hall. It was at times quite technical, but I felt it was important not to shy away from the details. One of the most important things we can do is to highlight the strengths and weaknesses of the evidence. None of this means we should dismiss evidence outright. What we aspire to do is put it in the proper context. Kevin and David Ludwig have some differences, but they also have many similarities. Among those is their desire to use carefully controlled feeding studies to attempt to understand the effect of specific nutrients on metabolic health and disease. This is critical and painstaking work, But we know it's important because we know how hard it is for people to remember and report what they ate. And of course, there are all the issues with confounding and attributing causality that come along with non-randomized observational nutritional research. While Kevin and David might differ on how they interpret the data supporting or refuting one model, the so-called carbohydrate-insulin model, after spending time with both of them, I'd argue that they agree about much more than they disagree. And I think it is so interesting that when I asked them both about how they would spend a lot of money in nutrition research, were it to fall in their laps, they both said pretty much the same thing. They would increase our capacity to do rigorous controlled feeding studies on human beings over a long period of time. They both want bigger and better metabolic wards. In many ways, they are both saying that we are nowhere near where we need to be in terms of the data. We need more. We need the highest quality data, the most robust data, and the cleanest data. This is Best Known Method.